earth. He has no name in the land. He's driven from light into darkness and is banished from the world. He has no offspring or descendants among his people, no survivor where he once lived. Men of the West are appalled at his fate. Men of the East are seized with horror. Surely such is the dwelling of an evil man, such is the place of one who knows not God. If you want an example of how not to comfort someone, that's probably about as bad as it gets, uh, or as good an example as you can get. It is an astonishing speech. Bildad is really angry. In uh, chapter 5, his other friend Eliphaz makes a similar speech. And what Bildad is really saying is, I've tried to help you. We've tried to show you how you can be comforted. We've tried to show you how you can deal with this, and you are not listening to us. He's used his understanding and his theology, and nothing is happening, and so he gets angry. Verse 4, you who tear yourself to pieces in your anger, is the earth to be abandoned for your sake, or must the rocks be moved from their place? What Bildad is saying to Job is, look, this is the way the world is. Do you want the whole universe to be reconstructed to suit you? Why do you want to change my black and white world? Here's the world, says Bildad. Bad people do bad things and God punishes them. You clearly are being punished, therefore you've done something bad. Maybe in an earlier speech, uh, one of his friends suggests, maybe you don't even know what you've done, but you must have done something, because this kind of stuff doesn't happen to good people. Bildad is really saying to Job, shut up, be sensible. Do you really know God? His poem, uh, or his section of this poem, it's actually the best in terms of structure. He's got great gifts as an orator. But his gift of art, his gift of words is misused to destruct rather than to construct. He just didn't get. He didn't get where Job was coming from. He didn't, he, he didn't get what had happened, and he wanted to fit everything in to how he understood. And one of the things I was trying to say this morning is be very careful about doing that because sometimes it's just a whole lot better to say, I don't know, I don't get it, I don't understand. What Job needed was somebody truly to empathize with him, truly to be with him, not to come along and try and make sense of it all and then just um, get really frustrated when Job didn't fall in with what they were saying. There's a wonderful verse, uh, or verse, line in Shakespeare in his play, A Winter's Tale, where he says, I saw his heart in his face. We need someone to understand. We need someone in Philippians 4 verse 14, Paul says, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. We need people to be able to empathize. And I think that's very, very important for us as a church as um, we face uh, this whole situation with the death of uh, our brother David Jack. It's, it's really, really important that we are able to empathize. I think one of the ways that people deal with grief, and the, the one that scares me a little bit, is that people will be shocked, they, they grieve for a couple of weeks, and then forget about it and just carry on with life. Or perhaps we might try and be like Job's friends, and for those who are hurting the most, we're trying to provide all the different answers, and they're not getting it. 
what we what people really need is just that kind of empathy and compassion that Christ showed at the, the, the grave of Lazarus, that Paul speaks of in Philippians, where we share in people's troubles. It is, just let me make this as a kind of general observation, when people go through a really traumatic death or, or, or someone close to them dies, I've, I've heard this said to me many times by people, there are those who come alongside and those who share and those, and those who express sympathy though they don't really know how to do it. But there are a considerable number of people who back off, who say things like, well, I don't want to go to church today because it'll be a bit sad because, you know, let that all calm down. Or they, they, they treat some, sometimes people who are grieving as though they've got some kind of disease and want to stay away from them. Now, for some of you, that may seem ridiculous, but sometimes that is what happens. I wouldn't know what to say. There's sometimes not very much that you can say. Just being with somebody, I saw his heart in his face, is just a great way, trying uh, to understand and to empathize. So I think Bildad's speech is um, just so, so, so wrong. And then you get Job's reply. And we'll read that in chapter 19. It's extraordinary. How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry, I've been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so that I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. My guests and my maidservants count me a stranger. They look upon me as an alien. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I'm nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped by only the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you say, how we will hound him, since the root of the trouble lies in him, you should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will bring punishment by the sword. And then you will know that there is judgment. It's just a, a classic response. And Job 
in his sixth speech, responds how, I think, in a way that many of us could understand. Bildad says, why won't you listen to me? How long will you not listen to me? Job says, how long will you continue to torture me? Leave me alone. And he, he, he says that there are two things that are wrong with him. Verses 6 to 12, he's saying, God has wronged me. There is no justice. He has blocked my way. He uses a whole series of images to describe God attacking him. God is portrayed as an enemy soldier besieging his small tent. He talks about how God is obstructed, darkened, stripped, decrowned, teared down, uprooted. All is hope about God who is angry and God is the one who alienates. That's what Job felt and he was incredibly honest in expressing it. But he was wrong. Well, maybe he was. Let's just ask that. Was he right to feel like this? I think he was certainly wrong in his perception of God. God was not angry with him. And later on when God speaks, God doesn't answer all these questions. God just says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the heavens and the earth? Where were you when this happened? In um, uh, Malik's new film, I forgot even what it's called. What was it? The Tree of Life. Thank you, Annabelle. See, it's great. Married 25 years and she knows exactly what I'm thinking. The Tree of Life. In the Tree of Life, it starts. It's, it's an incredible, for me, I, I, I know I've gone on about this film before, but you're sitting in the DCA and the first thing that comes up on the screen is the words from Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the heavens and the earth? And in actually, in, the, in that film, there's a very, very good sermon actually in it talking about um, how we actually can't come to God. We can ask, but if God answers us, it, will pro- it very often will not be the answer that we expect. God ha- actually hadn't done these things to Job. He'd allowed them to happen. He hadn't prevented them happening. God was not angry with him. And the interesting thing is when God speaks, Job is silent because he realizes it's a different reality. It's a bigger picture. It is not wrong in Job's circumstances to be angry, to be hurt, to be confused. It's not wrong at all. But it's wrong to think that you know what God is doing and that God has done it. I think the biggest complaint that Job has here is that God is silent. His friends are yakking away, but God is silent. I think he doesn't want God to be silent at all. He feels rejected by him. And if you take several of the Psalms, but particularly Psalm 77, David says the same thing. The worst thing that can happen to us is not that God speaks to us in anger. It's that God doesn't speak. And so he says that God has wronged me. I think in the situation that we face at the moment, um, we should be thankful that God speaks, that God speaks through his word, that God speaks through our circumstances, that God, as C.S. Lewis says, whispers to us in our joys and shouts to us in our pains. I think God is speaking and communicating with us. But his second complaint, verses 13 to 20, is, I think, an even stronger complaint He's alone. He feels that God has forsaken him, and that's a terrible thing. 
But there is the loss of those he loved, the desperate loneliness. Job's passion for God does not make him insensitive to human relationships. He begins at the outer circle of his social acquaintances, kind of his workmates and and the people he's with, and then he goes into the most intimate relationships. Verse 16, for example, it is his personal, verse 15, his personal servants, my guests and my maidservants, count me a stranger, they look upon me as an alien. Verse 17, my breath is offensive to my wife. Uh, one of the commentators says, and this is where I have to be careful with the medical stuff, that this is halitosis, that he, was, he, he, he basically, he stank. His body stank and his breath stank. His breath was offensive to his wife. Verse 18, even the little children despise him. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. Now, in our culture, sadly, we may not consider that to be such a great thing. In the culture of Job's day, for little children to mock their elders was uh, the absolute in degradation. Verse 19, his friends, all my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. And that incredible expression in verse 20 that he's nothing but skin and bones. He's, he's escaped only by the skin of his teeth. I think that um, we use that, that expression. In this particular context, it's probable that what had happened is his teeth had fallen out and only his gums were left. He was just, he was just a mess and in a dreadful state. And there was no one to be with him, no one to be alongside him. It was the depths of despair and darkness. I don't believe that I, I know or have read of anyone who has gone as low as Job did and apart from Jesus. And that's a big apart from. And that's why verses 23 onwards are just an unbelievable testimony. We love, love it, I think, and we admire somebody who's gone through a tremendous thing and they speak of their faith in Christ and they're not using it as a, as a crutch, but it really is where they're drawing their strength and where they're coming from. But this is the absolute. Your children are dead. Your business is gone. Your wealth is gone. Your health is gone. You're despised in the world. Your friends have deserted you. Your wife says, why don't you curse God and die? And yet... Look at what he comes out with. If anyone had a justification for committing suicide, you'd have to say it was Job. And yet he cries out, God, have mercy upon me. And he comes out with this brilliant statement of faith where he says, I trust in God. Now, what he does here is, I just want to draw this out a little bit to help you see how amazing it is. First of all, he says he wants his innocence to be recorded. It's a courtroom image. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll. He's fairly certain that God is his enemy, and he's wrong in that. He's fairly certain he will never see good. He's fairly certain he's going to die. But he wants to meet God. He wants his words to be engraved in rock forever. But he moves from that. He doesn't just want a memorial. He doesn't just want a tombstone with his words written on it. He wants to see God. And this is where verse 25 it, it is just extraordinary. I know that my Redeemer lives. 
you know uh, Handel's Messiah and the, the words that's taken from that. And I, and I love the particular setting that Handel does for these words because they capture the hope and the extraordinariness of the hope there. How can we have a relationship with a God who causes the innocent to suffer? Job loves God and is confused and hurt by the fact that God appears to be his enemy. He needs a redeemer. Chapter 16 and verse 19, he said this, Even now my witness is in heaven, my advocate is on high. Job sacrificed for his children. In chapter 9 and verse 33, he says, If only there were someone to speak to me for God. And he knows what kind of redeemer he needs. There is an extraordinary grasp of, who's this? In my flesh, I will see God. He knew that it had to be someone who is God, and he didn't just hope that there would be a redeemer, he knew that there was one. He knew something about the resurrection life, maybe not a great deal. He knew that there was life beyond death. He knew that God has set eternity in the hearts of men, and he has made everything beautiful in its time. And he knew he needed a redeemer. Now, the word redeemer is really interesting. It's a Hebrew word, goel. And it's a word that's used of the champion of the oppressed and as a kin to Israel. A kinsman redeemer is how it's usually translated. A redeemer in the Old Testament was a person who provided protection or legal provision for a cl close relative who could not do so for themselves. Someone perhaps who had to pay a price to set property free from mortgage, animals from slaughter, persons from slavery or death, or the deceased from dishonor in order to keep them in the family. And if you read um, Leviticus 25, you'll get various descriptions of different types of redemption. Psalm 119 verse 154 says this, Defend my cause and redeem me. Preserve my life according to your promise. So Job is saying, on the negative side, there's all this stuff going on. I can't cope with it. I can't handle it. I can't deal it. I need, I need someone to come and to redeem. And it's so deep, and it's so painful, and it's so overwhelming that this Redeemer has to be God. I think it's extraordinary that Job grasps this. There's little doubt that he does. God doesn't just redeem his people. God becomes a blood relation. Things are dealt with within the family. And this, this whole idea of goel, of, of redeemer and covenant redemption, is used by the covenant people to refer to Yahweh, to their God, their covenant God. Exodus 6 verse 6, you find it over and over again. Things like this, I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. So Job is saying, my wife has turned against me. My children are gone. My friends have turned against me. Society has turned against me. I need a redeemer and I need someone who's going to take me into his family. Now it gets even, even better than that in that sense because he says, I know that there is a redeemer and I know that my redeemer lives. And then in verse 25, he goes on, and in the end, he will stand upon the earth. It could mean two things. Some people think that that means he will stand on my grave. I know my redeemer's living and he's going to trample on my grave. 
Or it actually could mean something else. And I think it's more likely in the context to mean this. That he's saying that it's a glimpse of life beyond death. And Job knows that de- death is temporary. Job, John 5.28 says this. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. It's an image of God. Job is saying... I'm going to die, but God tramples on the grave. At the end, God is greater than death. And that's why he then goes on to say, I will see him. And yet after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. He's not saying while I'm still alive, I will see God. I think it's talking about, um, he, he has some concept of bodily resurrection and some hope in bodily resurrection. His health is failing. His, his, his features and everything about him is painful. And yet <coughs> he sees that there is just tremendous hope in all of that. That's carried on in the New Testament where you get Paul in Philippians 3.21. Who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. Will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. I thought this week, to be fair, I thought that when I stood in the mortuary and saw David's body, that I would, I thought there's a possibility that I'm just going to look and say, no, how is this possible? Not just that he died, but how is it possible that this body will be raised? And it was a, um, it was a dreadful scene because of, of course, David's parents being with me and the distress and the anguish and the tears and everything else. And, you know, we prayed together and we read Psalm 23. But in myself, I just looked and thought, there's no way. This, this, is, this body will rise. Not in this form. I don't know how. But it will be transformed. Yet in my flesh, I will see God. Revelation 22 verse 3 says, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. It, for Job, that is an extraordinary statement of faith. He didn't have what we had. We had a one verse this morning that if... if if you didn't have it, you should really take it on board and you should um, think about it profoundly and deeply. And if you get it and you believe it, you really have made great progress in the Christian faith. It's in uh, John chapter 11 when we were looking at the whole situation with Lazarus. And in verse 25, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die do you believe this? I think it was this week or last week, the man who invented, what do you call it, cryogenics, where you freeze yourself, he gets a body and he freezes it, and in the hope that it's going to be able to be resurrected and so on. Well, he died. And guess what? They've frozen his body. And guess what? It doesn't make one whit of difference. Man cannot do that. 
It's not going to happen. But here, it's something else. It's something completely extraordinary. We are being told that our God is so powerful that he can take the deconstructed atoms, if you like, and he can reconstruct a body that will be pure, that will never die, that will never experience hunger or thirst or pain. It's not, the the importance of the bodily resurrection is this, we do not live on as disembodied spirits and souls forever. That's actually almost an impossible concept in biblical terms. There is, um, myself and Annabelle celebrating our uh, 25 years married, can you believe that? So young, child marriage. Um, we, uh, this, this weekend actually, and um, we actually did, went out to the Pete Inn. And uh, I personally, I've never, ever had a meal like it. I, I don't want to make you feel jealous at all or anything. Uh, but guys, if you're a young guy and you want to propose to anyone, this is the place to do it. She'll never say no if you take her here. Um, the, the salmon was literally melt in the mouth. All the kind of wee fancy stuff as well. I was kind of lost a wee bit. You know, why have you have such a big plate and such a wee bit in it? But that's stuff like that you don't ask. But the tastes were stunning. It was just a beautiful, beautiful meal. And it was just a great way to, to celebrate. You seriously think that you can get stuff like that on earth and in heaven you're not going to get anywhere near it. That's only a taste of what is to come in heaven. I think that uh, we just get this the wrong way around. We think that the reality is, is what we do here and now. And of course it is to some degree. But we have the notion that what comes afterwards is somehow unreal. But it's not. It's the ultimate in reality. And Job is not sitting having a really nice meal. Job is in the midst of this most incredible situation that not one person here will ever get near to being in. And he says, I know my Redeemer lives. I know that in the end he'll stand on the earth. I know that after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. And look at the conclusion of it. He's, he's greatly moved by this. How my heart yearns within me. Um, I don't know why we had this conversation. We were talking about kidneys. Oh, that's right. The lecturer or whatever who wants to, those of you who are students, to be able to sell a kidney to finance your education. Um, about as insane as you can get. But uh, we were talking about kidneys and liver and Myself and Emma Jane were trying to work out, do we have two livers and one kidney, or is it two kidneys and one liver, and things like that. And here it is, kidneys, how my kidneys yearn within me. Now, you couldn't say that. What would that mean? it's, It's just one of the Hebrewisms of describing the internal feeling that you have. And what Job is saying is that inside he is overwhelmed and exhausted at the prospect. And that's because emotionally, he's having two things going on at the same time. He's having this incredible rejection, this incredible sense of injustice. He's having this physical pain. He's having this incredible loss. And at the same time, in the same 
human being, he has got this fantastic hope. I know that my Redeemer lives. And it exhausts him. It overwhelms him. It kind of rips him apart and yet also fills him with hope. He says to Bildad, you be very careful. Your own words do not rebound on you. You will be judged. He says to Bildad, basically, this is my hope. My only hope is that there is a Redeemer. We need to ask that of ourselves. I think Job was probably contemporary with Abraham and the patriarchs, maybe even earlier. Yet he had this wonderful faith. How great that he could say so much, knowing so little. And we have been given so much more. We all need to remember that life on earth is at best preparation for a richer, fuller life to come. We enjoy this life. We should enjoy this life. But we need to recognize that it is all temporary. Paul says to the Philippians, I desire to depart. He uses a word that was used for the last rope to be cut before the ship sets sail. As I was saying this morning, for Christians, death is not the gateway into ultimate darkness, but rather a means of meeting with Christ. We have a kinsman redeemer, we have a brother, and he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We can have that confidence as well. First Peter 1, verse 18 and 19 says this, You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus didn't die so that you and I could live our 70, or our three score years and 10, 70 years in this life. Jesus didn't die so that we could have a Mercedes Benz. Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Jesus didn't die so that we would never experience a cold or cancer. He didn't die so that we would just get all the good things in this life. He died so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that we could be with him forever in glory. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about what's happening now, but he knows that it's temporary. And it always is temporary. Change and decay in all around I see. I can't really empathize with Job because I've never experienced all the things that he has gone through. But I think the one thing I, that makes more sense to me now um, after this week is this just contrasting emotions. The, the, the ripping apart inside at the sorrow, the incredible sorrow. Um, I'm a very logical person, and I, well, I think I am anyway, uh, and I like to try and work things out and get it sussed and deal with it, get on with it. And on Tuesday, uh, I was down in Costas and doing uh, what I usually do when I'm very emotional, eating and drinking. And I sat there with a coffee and a roll, and I ate it, and I drank it. And then I just started crying, and for 45 minutes, I just kept thinking about what had happened and how horrible it was. And yet it was just bizarre. 
because it was like this. I kept thinking, but Christ lives. And because Christ lives, David is not dead. Not in the sense that others mourn him. And because Christ lives, I don't need to be afraid of death. I understand entirely when a small child hears about death and gets really upset. Um, Isla's got a great story to tell about Fraser, but I'll not tell it. But it's just, I th- it was just lovely. made me feel great um, at one level. But it's just, as a wee child, just gets so scared that, what, what, if, what, if, what if my mum or my dad dies or what if something like that happens? And I think that uh, you... I, can, I understand that in a child because it's something that we have as adults. And I think we get rid of that fear by the simple truth that I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and I will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. And that's what gives us tremendous hope and tremendous comfort and the ability to, to feel sorrow and pain, but to go on with a great peace and a great joy. Let me finish just with one other thing, slightly just a, a little bit different, how perceptions are. In this world and in our culture and in our society, people live with very, very wrong perceptions. And those perceptions are challenged. For example, on one of the news programs today, uh, this morning, or being introduced, it was going to introduce a discussion program, it said, in a week when our view of humanity and our society has been challenged, we are going to. And I just instantly said to myself, my view has not been challenged. My view about society has been confirmed. Because that's what the Bible, I think it's what the Bible tells us. Let me put it just a slightly different way. In a week when our view of life and death has been challenged, has it, or have we just had confirmed to us what the Bible already says? So that what we said in theory, what we said in terms of our confession and so on, has suddenly become immensely real. This morning I said, I don't understand how if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you handle death. I, I, I don't understand. I, I, you have to avoid it, I think. You have to lie. You have to delude yourself. As a Christian, we've just got this tremendous hope that's summarized by Job. And uh, let's thank the Lord for it. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless it to us. Help us as we respond to it. And thank you for the absolute assurance that our Redeemer lives. Jesus, you are alive. You're not a a dead God. You're not a philosophy. You're not a hope. You're not an image. You're not wishful thinking. You're not a religion. You are alive. And because of that, because you live, we also shall live. Grant that each of us may place our faith and trust in you and live as those who have eternal life. In your name, amen. 
You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.